Um, I have been exploring the sacraments this summer uh, with you, and if you've uh, been um, here this summer and been part of these series, you may know it's not the standard fare that I'm giving you. I'm kind of exploring some stuff I want to actually follow up on in uh, Sunday school uh, this fall, and, um, and I'm refracting the, uh, the sacraments through an understanding of the theology of the cross, which is what I, I, I think they need to, uh, wherein I think they need to be interpreted. So we're, we're, we're actually in a, <clears throat> in a series of uh, sermons now towards the end here as we're looking at the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, depending on how um, you look at that. I'm going to be doing this in chronological form this next three uh, Sundays. Um, that is chronology in terms of the canon of the New Testament. Um, the first would be Paul, and that's what we will be taking up this morning. And this is the most ancient uh, rendition of the sacraments that we have in, in 1 Corinthians. Next week, we will be doing Mark, which would be roughly, Paul is roughly in the 50 in the common era, and, um, and Mark is 70, and then we'll be picking up the Gospel of John um, on the, the first Sunday of, of August when we will actually partake of communion. But first of all, this text, this really fascinating text from um, Paul's first letter to the church and at Corinth where he is addressing a lot of tensions, chief among them, in the way they partake of the Lord's Supper. So even though it's not printed in your bulletin, I invite you to attend to this text in your pew Bible. I think you have a, a, a reference. Yes, you do, a pew Bible, a, <clears throat> a page number. I will be reading from uh, chapter 11 of the 1 Corinthians, uh, verses 17 through 34. Listen for the word of God as I read these words. Now in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. Indeed, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who those who are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you proceeds to eat your own supper. And one goes hungry, and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have households to eat in and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this manner, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed to you, that the Lord on the night that he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also 
after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judge ourselves we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not, not be for your condemnation. About other things, I will give you instruction when I come. This is the word of the Lord. What an amazing text, huh? Um, when I read this text, I cannot help but be reminded of a story that uh, Robin Kimmerer tells in this just marvelous book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass. Robin Kimmerer, you may know, you may have read her book. Some of us did read the book uh, in a book study that we did together. Um, she is Native American botanist. And she has a dream about going to her local market. And there she went in this dream to buy a, a bunch of carrots. And she pulled out some money to pay for the carrots, and the vendor of the stall said, no, 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 it's a gift. And then she moved on to another stall, and one of her favorite rolls was there. And so she went to buy the rolls, and she pulled out again the money, and she said, no, 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 patted her on the arm, and says, no, it would be almost as if it was impolite to pay for this food. And she went from stall to stall. The same thing happened. And it was not just for her. It was for everyone in the market. They were all being given gifts, and, and no one was paying for the food. It was a sense of euphoria that came over her, a sense of gratitude. And she noticed that her basket was half full, but it felt full. It was enough for the meal that she had planned. And she looked over and she thought, well, you know, there's a cheese stall. I'd like to get some cheese. But she knew that it would be given to her as a gift. And so she showed restraint. The experience for her, this dream, it was a dream, showed the market difference between a market economy and a gift economy for her. The sense of gratitude that comes when we are given gifts and we feel full because of the gifts. We feel that there's an abundance even when our baskets are half full. Rather than hoarding our goods and giving out only when they're surplus. Norman Wurzbaugh, in a book that we haven't done here yet, I'd love to do, Food and Faith, A Theology of Food, I commend it to you. 
Uh, he is a um, uh, Duke theologian. Uh, grew up in Canada, on a farm in Canada. Uh, remarkable eco-justice theologian. This book is just remarkable. Really completely reframed my, my understanding of food. What he says here is, 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 is what we ought to know, and that is, is when God created the world, there was a promise that God would be present deeply in the world too. And God's logos, that is God's word, God's creating word would be imprinted on all things, including our food, so that when we partake of food, we're partaking of God's life. This is to eat in a Eucharistic way. That's what the church teaches. When we serve the Eucharist, we are teaching people to eat in a Eucharistic way. And for Wurzbaugh, this means resisting the commodification of food. But more than that, it's resisting the market-driven enticements that make us feel ungrateful because we feel that we don't have enough. It's remarkable what we say at communion often before we, we partake, the gifts of God for the people of God. That's a summary in some ways. Not only of communion, but the way we're supposed to look at our food, the way we're supposed to look at our lives, the way we're supposed to look at the good, good gifts of God creation. It's a way of, of thinking about things. And you know, when you think about it that way, it's a very subversive thing. Because it subverts and reverses the way the world thinks about these things. And that's what Paul, I think, is getting at in this passage in 1 Corinthians. In the ancient world, you see, food was about power. Food was about power. Now, I want you to think about that because I want you to ask the question, is food still about power? Hmm? But in the ancient world, it was. It was under the control of the elite and the privileged, and they, 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 had, they had control of its, uh, its, its uh, production, distribution, and consumption. And so if you're poor, you were beholden to the rich. Now, if that's the context in which Paul is writing this letter, and he, it is, then here's a question. When you become a disciple of Jesus, what changes? Do you simply mimic the world that's out there already? <clears throat> or does it get transformed? Well, it seems that for the um, Corinthian church, they were simply mimicking the world out there. They were simply reproducing what's already out there. So if you were going to have an assembly, the church, it would typically happen at a privileged person's home because only their homes were big enough to accommodate the whole assembly. And the privileged people are the ones who have the freedom from work so that they could get home early and start their meals and drink their wine before the poor folk who got off work pretty late got there and then the food was gone and the wine was gone and the elite, the leaders of the church, so to speak, were drunk and on the floor. Now, isn't this special? They obviously did not have the Presbyterian Book of Order. <laughs> and they had not discovered grape juice. However, if we think it's just order and grape juice would solve the problem, and it would, some, it's not the whole issue there. 
So let's, let's look at what Paul says to them. In particular, let's look at the words of institution. This is the most ancient form of them that we have. They no doubt preceded him, and he tells us that they preceded him, but this is in the tradition. This is the, this is the earliest form of it. It's very familiar to us. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, do it, remember me. And then he said, as often as you drink this cup, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, which is shorthand for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I suspect we've heard those words so often. I've said them so often. Um, that they become so commonplace that we miss the huge impact that they had for Paul. I suspect we do, because it is huge. When he repeats them, he's repeating them in the context of a whole understanding of theology that he has explicated throughout this letter and through all of his letters. Um, and it's important to get at that. So I want to introduce, not introduce, reintroduce the notion of apocalyptic for you again. And the reason I'm doing that is because I've mentioned it to you probably several times this summer, because I think it frames not only Paul's letters, but the entirety of the New Testament. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the New Testament that inaugurated the new age, inaugurated the new creation in the midst of the old, and this was certainly the case for Paul. He says this from the get-go, in the letter to the first Corinthians when he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified, which is, which is foolishness for some, shameful for others, confounding to the rulers of the age, yet for those who believe, the wisdom and power of God. Now what's Paul saying here? He's saying that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the decisive moment for God in history. It's apocalyptic in the sense that apocalypse means to reveal, to unmask, to expose. And reveal, I think, is a little too domesticated if that's all we say. It unmasks what's going on in the world. The rulers of the age, that's why they're confounded, because it unmasks them. It unmasks I think what he's getting at is what Willie Jennings gets at when he talks about the diseased colonial imagination that sees everything as an object of exploitation. In our age, commodification. We see everything that way. And that's what I think he's getting at. And he gets at it in a variety of ways in a variety of places. In our, in our own, um, and, 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 and it's an inauguration of the, of, of, of the new creation, which is an egalitarian place of reciprocity, of seeing one another's gifts, of the receiving and the giving of gifts, of radical hospitality. It is this kind of new reality that has come in the midst of the old that is subverting and reversing the old, reversing all of the values. He gets at this in a variety of ways. You know, in the famous... Um, 1 Corinthians 13, the so-called love chapter, which needs to be read in places other than weddings, by the way. 
It needs to be read here in church. He talks about love that is not arrogant or rude, does not insist on its own way. That's just not pushy people. That's a colonial imagination. That's colonial way of doing things. It's arrogant. It's rude. It insists on its own way. And in the book of Galatians, he talks about it again at, at, at the tail end of the book of Galatians in chapter 5. He talks about the works of the Spirit, which are jealousy, it's envy. It's, it's all these things that are, again, part of this colonial imagination. This machination that wants, to, that wants to manipulate things. And then he talks about the fruit, singular, of the Spirit, which are love, peace, joy. This is the new creation that Paul has in mind. And so... so so we need to keep these things in mind as, as, we, as we ponder this tradition that Jesus passed down to the Corinthians and to us. The tradition that Paul invokes in the place that he invokes it, which is a place of abuse, of a place of where there are hierarchies of values that are they're just not being addressed, that have not been unmasked, but he's trying to unmask them. That's what he's trying to do. Now, to be sure... Um, in any good sermon on the Eucharist, the big question, if you go to the textbooks on this, the big questions are, how is Christ present in the supper? That's the big question. For centuries, that's been the big question. It has divided us as Christians. Uh, we have killed each other over these things. Is it transubstantiation, which is the, the classic Roman Catholic view, which is the body and the, and the, and the, 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 um, the, the elements become the body and the blood of Christ? Is it consubstantiation, which is associated with Lutheranism, which the, uh, the, body and the, the body and blood of Christ are offered with the bread and the cup? Is it spiritual presence, which is a reformed tradition, uh, in which we are lifted to heavenly places, in which we are at the right hand of God. And, so, and so, the, so Christ is present in the elements spiritually, but it's a real presence. Or is it a mere memorial, which is the Baptist tradition? Now, I think that's, that stuff is kind of interesting and kind of important. And if you read any book on the uh, Eucharist, that's the main thing you're going to get there. And please understand, I am not denying that's important. I am not. I'm not going to lose my ordination over this. I had, to learn, I had to learn this stuff for my ordination exams. I don't want to learn, lose my ordination or my pension, by the way. <laughs> it's important. But folks, it's not nearly as important as the why question. Why do we say that Christ is present in the elements? For Paul, I dare say, whether he's concerned or not with the how question, he is totally preoccupied with the why question. And it's an apocalyptic why question. Because when we say, do this in remembrance, we are enacting the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a spiritual embodiment. We are being formed by it. It's, it's, it's this grand unmasking of the world, you see the values of the world, subverting them, reversing them. And when we do that, it's critically important to know that. When we're doing that at communion, this is really big stuff. We're being formed in this reality. As Norman Wurzbach, he actually calls it to become a slow church. It means we slow down. We're mindful about the things in the world. We're mindful about the ways we consume. We're mindful about our activities. We're mindful about, about wh wh whether the world exploits or not. We're mindful about that colonial imagination. 
that diseased colonial imagination that Willie Jennings talks about. That's what we do at communion. This is big stuff that happens here. It's not just about forgiveness. It is that. But it's forgiveness with a big plus. It's forgiveness with, with, with opening up the, God's new creation for us. But there's one more thing, one more critical thing that happens in communion. Before Jesus does all of that other stuff, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. And that's a very powerful beginning to communion. It's the basis, by the way, for the Eucharistic prayer that we do at every communion service. It's the very basis for it. And to get at that, I want to I want to I want to um, uh, offer another story from Robin Kimmerer. She talks about the um, Thanksgiving um, address that is offered at almost every Native American school on sovereign territory. And she compares it to the Pledge of Allegiance that's done in public schools. She grew up in the public schools, and she did the Pledge of Allegiance, and she said she was always puzzled as to why we pledged allegiance to a nation, but not to the actual country. So in the Thanksgiving address, it's a long address. There's a whole chapter on it. It's an enormous address. And it gets into the minutiae of the creation. It gives thanks for the Mother Earth. It gives thanks for the balance and the cycles of creation, for the cycles of the season. It gives thanks for the water, the very kinds of the water. It gives thanks for the plant, the very kinds of the plants, and the plants for food. It gives thanks for the medicinal herbs. It gives thanks for the trees. It gives thanks for the birds. I don't know if it gives thanks for the squirrels, but it probably does. It goes on and on and on and on and on. They call it the long address. And she says that when they're done, there's something remarkable that happens a sense of deep, deep gratitude. A sense that I have all I need. There's enough. There's enough for all. And I don't need to go out shopping to satisfy my needs. I dare say there's something deep and abiding going on in that prayer that's going on in the Eucharist. When we embody are formed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're formed to be sure to unmask, to reverse the values of the day, but then we're formed for a deep sense of reciprocity. A deep sense of gratitude for the good gifts of God's creation. And a very deep sense that what we're to be about is receiving and the giving of gifts. And equality, a mutuality in that whole process. I dare say that when we commission the folk who are going to Guatemala that it is this deep sense of the cycle of reciprocity that these folk will experience in Guatemala. And they'll bring back to us. I dare say it's the thing that we 
experiences the reality of God that we experience here. As it subverts, it reverses, it opens up our eyes to God's new creation, which, is, which was in the old creation, but we missed it. It opens our eyes, it exposes it, and unmasks it. It reveals it to us as a gift. And each person is a gift. And each tree is a gift. And the bread and cup is a gift. And that is perhaps why we say, before we partake of communion, the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, for the gifts that we have received. From the beginning uh, of our life to now, gifts we are prone to neglect, gifts that we have seen so commodified, I dare say even exploited. We ask that you would open our eyes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Open our eyes, unmask the reality that we live in, and reverse it and show us with gratitude the deep giftedness in which we live and move and have our very being. Amen.